0: Roxy, what was your first alcoholic beverage?
1: My first alcoholic beverage was a course. I was pretty young, like probably like 12 or 13, maybe even younger. And it was like around a bonfire. I think maybe my dad let me try it. I don't remember it being like a really big deal that I drank it, but I remember thinking that was disgusting.
0: Oh, you didn't like it.
1: No. Again, it was a course.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sitting around the campfire
1: is probably like warm. Oh. What was yours?
0: Mine was a half of a wine cooler in college. College. And it was like really bright colored and I felt very cool. Yeah. It was off campus and it was like at a party with older students.
1: The early 2000s, the era of smirnoff ice
0: and zima. <laughs> oh my gosh. And low-waisted <sighs> jeans. It was it was a bad time. From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two single Christian women making our way in New York without losing our spirits or our spirits. I'm Caitlin Beatty. And I'm Roxy Stone. In one of our episodes in season three, We figured out that there are more than 2,000 bars in New York, but only like 600 therapists.
1: I do remember that startling stat.
0: We crossed off a few of those bars last weekend. Yes, we did. We were out for your birthday. We visited Ace Bar, which was really fun. We tried to visit Beauty Bar.
1: Oh, one of my favorites, but it was like reserved. We
0: got there too early because of our age. (laughs) And then we ended up at a speakeasy type place behind a chicken shop. And that's when I left.
1: (laughs) Actually, the place was kind of cool. I was happy to have been introduced to it. But yeah, drinking is like very much a part of New York City culture. And I have become much more aware of it, in particular, since I had a friend become sober But also, like, I gave up alcohol for Lent this year, and I've done that before as well.
0: You mean except for your birthday? Except
1: for my birthday. I did make a feast day exception for my birthday. But anyway, when you give it up, you notice that it's everywhere.
0: Yes. Just walking from my apartment to the grocery store, I probably pass 10 bars. Yeah. And it feels very much like if you want to go out and do something with friends, that's probably what you're going to do. Right. I think that's what
1: is maybe the trickiest thing to me is like, how do you hang out in a way in New York that isn't centered around alcohol? And I find that to be like a worthwhile challenge to figure out. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons I feel like it's a good Lenten fasting choice is because, you know, when I think about like the reason to fast from something for Lent, it feels like it should force you to recenter or change Mm -hmm. toward God in some way or relationship. And I feel like not drinking really forces you to rethink, like, how do I engage with my friends in New York? How do I engage with my time in New York?
0: Mm -hmm. I was struck going out this weekend that your 20s can be so much more oriented around getting together with friends and drinking. And I think there's something in me that wants to find a different way of connection, like Mm -hmm. something that's healthier, that's more truly connective than passively hanging out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And examining the ways that alcohol either facilitates that or doesn't facilitate that. Yeah. Before we get to our guest today, Sarah Bessie, on why she gave up alcohol, let's do a drinking DTR. Okay. (laughs) Maybe setting aside this specific Lent time. But let's say, you know, maybe in like the last three years. Like maybe... Mm, mm, that's a long period of time. March 2020. <laughs> let's let's start there. Not to put too fine a point on it. How would you describe your relationship with alcohol in that time?
1: Probably like a lot of people. I think I went into March 2020 at a place where I felt like I didn't notice my drinking too much because it was all social pretty much. Mm-hmm. I think looking back, I still think I w- was probably drinking too often too much, but I was also going out too often too much and I was spending too much money too often. I like, was mm-hmm. kind of all of those things, which again is also all part of New York culture. And I think that March 2020 really like, well, it put a screeching halt to the social part of it but not to the drinking part of it. And I think like that was when I like really realized was, that I had been drinking too much because like, I was doing it alone. I was like, and I was kind of maybe like keeping up at the same pace as I was before where I would mm-hmm. have a drink every night mm-hmm. and I was just like watching TV by myself or putting together a puzzle or coloring, you know, the things we were all doing, <laughs> zooming, <laughs> a lot of, a lot of like wine zooms. Yes. And, yes. And, it was about three months in, in I think in May, that I was like, okay, something's something's got to give here, mm-hmm. and I feel like that I have maintained that, mm-hmm. with some decided like low moments since then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Toss the hot potato, DTR RTD to you.
0: Yeah, well, I would say similarly. Prior to the pandemic, I was mostly drinking with friends or out with people. And there's something about drinking with other people that, to me, generally feels more moderate and more like the drinking is in the point. It's either celebration or relaxing. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm more moderated if I'm with other people. Right. Again, generally. Drinking in the pandemic became very routine and became a coping mechanism. Just like... (laughs) things are bad. And this takes my mind off of that Mm -hmm. for an evening. Mm -hmm. Then at the end of 2020, I started living alone and my drinking increased significantly.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Still some pandemic-related restrictions, but I think it was a way for me to cope with uncomfortable feelings of loneliness. Yes. And so I would say probably in the last year, I've started to just know that something has to change, but not knowing how to do it.
1: Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of shame around all of this too, which is I think one of the things that we should we should talk about and and Sarah will talk about too. Mm. Because I think even in just saying that, is like, oh, have I admitted this problem that I can never walk back mm-hmm. from? And, you know, because I think that so much of the language around mm-hmm. consuming alcohol is either is either you don't have a problem or you're an alcoholic and therefore Mm -hmm. alcohol is just dangerous to you. And I think that that conversation has been shifting a little bit, but I think that we have to recognize there's like a lot bigger spectrum than you're fine and you have no problem or you're an alcoholic.
0: Yeah. I think that's helpful to break down a kind of hardened binary of you can drink whatever and you don't have a problem versus, you know, the disease model Mm -hmm. of alcoholism. Mm -hmm. And I think you know, a lot of people probably intuit that there's something off in the way that they relate to alcohol, but would not be clinically identified as an alcoholic and are scared by that label.
1: Right. And so it keeps them in the place of still having the problem because they're mm-hmm. afraid that if they say they do, then they're just like going to be told they're an alcoholic and then mm-hmm. like have to orient their entire life around that.
0: Right. This is an identity. Right. Right. Well, as you know, based on our conversation at one of the bars this past weekend, I've I've done dry January for several years, and this year I just decided to keep going by myself, meaning mm-hmm. I can drink socially with other people. That probably happens two, maybe three nights a week. But when I'm home alone, I'm not drinking. Yeah. I'm not bringing alcohol to my apartment. And without sounding... Alarmist. That is actually a quite drastic change Mm -hmm. in my life rhythms. And the things that I was afraid of, like, I'm just going to be so lonely and so bored have not been true.
1: How has it been?
0: It's interesting. I mean, I I will occasionally still have the thought at the end of a workday, like, man, I would love a glass of wine. Like, I would just love to unwind or have wine with dinner or whatever, but then it passes, Mm -hmm. you know, like you can have a craving and then the craving eventually resides. Mm -hmm. And I've just found other ways to occupy the time. Mm -hmm. And that feels generative rather than I'm trying to numb out to something difficult. Because the reality is that the difficult feelings are going to be there no matter what, like alcohol doesn't actually... Create a solution to them. It just numbs you to the discomfort
1: and makes you feel worse the next morning.
0: well, yeah, you think about the cost of it. It's not just you're gaining an experience of escape or numbing out. you're also all the health related yeah. issues, not just you know physically but mentally and emotionally. I found I was having a lot
1: of panic attacks when I drank, and that was like kind of a big thing for me during the pandemic. It was like mm-hmm. one of the reasons I think besides just training that I was like, I, I have to knock this off because I was like waking up in the middle of the night with panic attacks. And, and I realized that was partly being brought on by drinking and also like a global pandemic and the fear of my parents dying. So it is something that I am acutely aware of how much better I feel. When I'm not Mm -hmm. drinking and when I'm not drinking, I recognize that because then when I like do go out and have drinks, I'm, I notice the difference. I'm like, okay, this is real. This does cost me something. And as you said, in a bunch of ways.
0: And we haven't even talked about the expense of it. Yeah.
1: Which is a big factor in New York.
0: I think what is important and what it sounds like both of us have tried to practice has been um, mindfulness about alcohol. This is why I drink when I drink. I'm making a choice both to drink or not drink. It's not something that's just like an unexamined part of my life. And it sounds like for both of us, that has meant drinking less than a few years ago.
1: I agree with you. I have not cut it out wholesale other than lint. Mm -hmm. I can really, really resonate with people like my friend who have just given it up and have made mm-hmm. that decision for themselves. Um, and and like Sarah, our guest today, I have not made that decision and I don't plan to, but I also think that that is like a really valid and valiant decision to make and its own form of resistance to consumerism and a culture that wants you to numb out.
0: And I also sense that culturally we are coming to a place where sobriety is not a scary, I mean, it is a big lifestyle change and decision for a lot of people, but it doesn't feel stigmatized as it might have been because more people are waking up to the ways that it is a destructive force. Mm -hmm. Seeing it as a place of liberation for oneself rather than punishment, like you lost your drinking privileges. Right. Right. It's not just you, you can't do this fun thing anymore. It's like, no, you actually get to live more fully and awake and consciously. And I think that change in the cultural narrative around alcohol is for the better. I agree. And I have a feeling our guest today will agree too.
1: Sarah Bessie is the best-selling author of multiple books, co-founder of Evolving Faith and a really nice Canadian with charismatic roots.
0: We wanted to talk to Sarah about why she gave up alcohol, something she's written a lot about.
1: Removing
2: some of those things that were soporifics, removing some of those things that were putting me to sleep emotionally and spiritually,
1: it, it did feel a little bit like an awakening. Our conversation with Sarah is coming up right after we give a shout out to our sponsors. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics.
0: Get the dope on the various popes.
1: And if you like what we're doing at Saved by the City, let us know. Throw us a rating or a review. It goes a long way toward helping get the word out about the show.
0: Someone new highly recommends us. She says, I love how honest and vulnerable Roxy and Caitlin are and what it means to live as a Christian who is open to learning and changing. Also, there is something encouraging about hearing two super smart and thoughtful women speak. I love it. Five stars.
1: I love getting gold stars. Send us more love at podcast at religionnews.com.
2: I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. The State of Belief is a weekly podcast with a potent mix of spiritual wisdom, political strategy, and hopeful commentary. In a series of inspiring conversations, celebrating our diversity, and bringing us together to, in the words of the great James Baldwin, achieve our country. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app.
0: Let's do some sobering stats.
1: Yeah, we haven't done a data dump
0: in a while. Can we not call it a dump? (sniffs) A stack of stats? Stack of stats. I like that. So we're part of this cultural shift around alcohol, similar to what happened around smoking 40 years ago.
1: But even while we're starting to notice and talk about problematic drinking more, problematic drinking is also on the rise.
0: Especially for women. According to a 2019 study, women have been closing the gender gap in boozing, binge drinking, and alcohol use disorder. The ratio used to be 3 to 1 for risky drinking habits in men versus women. Now it's actually closer to 1 to 1 globally.
1: And the latest data from the U.S. shows that women in their teens and early 20s reported drinking and getting drunk at higher rates than their male peers.
0: Nearly half of adult women report drinking alcohol in the past month, and approximately 13% of those women report binge drinking.
1: And about 32% of female high school students consumed alcohol compared to 26% of male high school students. And binge drinking was also higher among female high school students than male.
0: Whoa, that's a change from my high school. Mm -hmm, Mine too. I I was not part of it, but at least my impression. I was around
1: it enough to know that it was the guys that were drinking the most.
0: And it gets worse. Yay. All of this is especially bad for women. Alcohol takes a worse toll on women's bodies and physiology than on men's. So women are at a higher risk for liver disease, cognitive decline, brain shrinkage, which I didn't realize it was a thing until now, and heart problems. So why are women drinking more?
1: When compared to men women reported higher rates of pandemic-related changes in productivity, mood, sleep, health-related anxiety, and frustration with the inability to partake in enjoyable activities.
0: Women are also more likely to take on the burden of household tasks, child-rearing, and caregiving than their male counterparts. The pandemic led to women having to take on these responsibilities without any kind of assistance.
1: It's all about stress and the second shift
0: as old as time.
1: Or at least the industrial revolution. Today's guest is Sarah Bessie. She's a book author, the co-founder of Evolving Faith, a self-described pseudo-hermit bookworm, an enthusiastic knitter, tea drinker, hockey fan, total hugger, and endlessly fascinated with Jesus.
0: She also claims to be an embarrassing fangirl for the TV shows Doctor Who and Schitt's Creek. Welcome,
2: Sarah. Hey, Sarah. It's good to see you. Oh, so glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation.
0: Yes, I've been I've been waiting for this for a while. <laughs> so, what was your relationship with alcohol growing up, especially how you understood it or as modeled by your Christian parents?
2: Sure, um, I grew up in a completely alcohol-free home, mm-hmm. to my understanding. Um, my parents came to faith when I was a kid, um, probably about, you know, six, eight years old. Um, but they came to faith in kind of one of those big, you know, turn your life upside down, you know, sort of ways. And one mm-hmm. of the ways that that happened was them just being like, you know what, we're done with this. We're, we're wow. done with alcohol. And so I have very clear memories when I was probably about nine or ten of them even having like this day of um, pouring out all the alcohol in the house, you know, of going and getting a a crown royal out of the cupboard and, you know, uh, pouring it down the sink and kind of having this day of like, yeah, you know what, we're done with this. This is just not who we are anymore. And I saw, you know, uncles and grandparents having a beer here and there at the lake or whatever, but it wasn't a huge deal in my life. It wasn't a huge factor. Never really drank, experimented a bit in my, you know, teens. I think like people usually do with some very poor decisions around wine coolers. (laughs) It was that era. (laughs) (laughs) And so I kind of felt like I got it out of my system a little bit because I just, you know, partied a wee bit for a few years there. But by the time I was 16 or 17, I was kind of like, yeah, you know what? I'm, I'm good. Like I'm good. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I had like a glass of wine again in like my mid twenties, and and at that point mm-hmm. it was kind of um, glamorous. I think mm-hmm. it was almost a sense of like, now you're a grown up. Mm-hmm. You know, you would hear people talking about lovely buttery Chardonnays and, you know, all sorts of things. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's I want to try that. I want to learn those things. And so, you know, I think, you know, I was working in banking at the time. And that was part of it. I was trying so aggressively hard to be as grown up and cosmopolitan as everybody I worked with, with my aunt Taylor little suits from the outlet <laughs> mall. And, and so it started off very slowly. Um, mm-hmm. And it was, you know, not something that I really necessarily felt like I had a whole lot of baggage around as much as I was just aware that it was a factor and had been a factor. I come from a long line of um, Scotch-Irish people who can hold our liquor like you wouldn't believe. And uh, and so it was just kind of, you know, there, but not a huge factor, I would say.
1: Hmm. A lot of Christians I know um, who grew up in sort of teetotaling homes, you know, they got, they, they hit an age in their mid-20s maybe where it was like, oh, alcohol was sort of like a way to show that they weren't as uptight and they were like more progressive Christians or, you know, they weren't, I mean, I, I I had a lot of friends like that, you know, and it was, and it was, it was, it was a bunch of Christian hipsters, you know, that were like oh Oh. beer whiskey, you know, triple Belgian.
2: (laughs) Exactly. I'm not a
0: regular
1: mom. I'm a cool mom. I'm not a regular Mm -hmm. Christian. I'm a cool Christian.
0: (laughs) Thank you for the mean girls reference. And it comes in every time. Yeah. I remember. So I didn't, I didn't drink until college and it was very minimal. Like I, I, I was on a dry campus, but the sense of like a personal identifier as I have this freedom in Christ. I don't want to be mm. legalistic. The, for sure. You know, teetotaling mm-hmm. is more a cultural signifier for the Baptists and I'm not that. So mm-hmm. I can imbibe. And it hasn't been until later that, you know, a lot of us might rethink is, is, is alcohol truly a helpful, like signifier for personal spiritual identity? Mm -hmm.
2: I mean, I, I, I drank very socially and easily for probably about 10 years. You know, it was right around, I want to say like 2016 or 2017, where I began to feel like, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm drinking a bit more than I want. And it has happened pretty subtly and pretty steadily. Mm where all of a sudden the bottle of wine that lasted for a week was becoming a box. And then that was becoming quicker. And I was like, you know, I just, I don't feel super great about this. It it doesn't feel like it's serving me really well. I I feel like I'm on a a bit of a a path that I don't love. And it hit this point where I thought not only is it not serving me, I feel like it's actively harming me.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: It had just become something without even really meaning to or intending to, um that had just become something that was almost making everything worse. And and I understood why. I mean, in a lot of ways, you know, the, the stories that were often told about alcohol, especially as women, uh, it's no wonder we believe them, right? It's, you know, you've had a hard day, you deserve a treat, you're in you're in pain, or yeah. this is going to help you sleep, or uh-huh. you know, you've especially, you know what when, when you're um a mum raising kids, There's a whole culture Mm -hmm. around wine mums and, you know, creating these dynamics and jokes around all this stuff that actually is, is pretty, pretty harmful. And so that was the point where I was like, okay, I think, I think I'm really properly done. And, um, and it was life changing.
1: Mm -hmm. It really
2: was. But once I kind of divested from that, all of a sudden I began to realize, oh, there's this whole culture that's deeply invested in keeping me drinking. There is this whole mm-hmm. dynamic that is deeply invested in keeping people sick and sad and addicted. Um, there And so once I began to kind of disentangle myself even from the culture around alcohol, even within Christians and within the church... Right mm-hmm. I think especially for those of us who maybe have been kind of identified as more on the progressive side of things, um, you know, it it like you said, Caitlin, it became like this marker of like, well, I'm not like them. I'm not a fundamentalist. Mm-hmm. Look at me having fun and doing all these things. never really thinking to question, is it actually good for me? <laughs> is mm-hmm. it actually serving mm-hmm. me? Is it actually, you know, adding anything to my life? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought these things were supposed to be helping, and this was supposed to be my big treat. <laughs>
0: Mm -hmm. And it Mm -hmm. turned out this was the thing that
2: was making everything 16 times worse.
0: Yeah. I've been really curious, Sarah, about how you've described this journey into sobriety as something of a, not just a a realization about kind of health, like mental or physical health, but also a spiritual journey or awakening. What has been the connection between your spiritual life and sobriety?
2: Um, That's a great question. I I think I'm probably still teasing that out a wee bit, but I think one of the things that I've most found, um, especially in the last number of years, um, is that spiritually speaking, I feel awake
1: Mm.
2: in a way that maybe I hadn't before. Um, In a lot of ways, I felt like (sighs) there's this sense of um, numbing almost, that happens with, with a lot of addictive behaviors and and it can be anything other than alcohol. There's a lot of things we can turn to and do those sorts of things. But there was a sense of like, I was in a lot of really deep pain, um, Mm -hmm. you know, physical and emotional. And, um, and I think even just given, you know, the state of our current apocalypse, that probably factors in, Mm -hmm. in in a lot of ways for a lot of us, right. As we're trying to cope with kind of the realities Mm -hmm. of our world right now. And mm-hmm. so there was a sense of like, I don't know that I will ever heal if I remain so committed to numbing what I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. And so removing some of those things that were soporifics, removing some of those things that were putting me to sleep emotionally and spiritually, it it did feel a little bit like an awakening. It felt a little bit like, you know, I'm, like if it's been cloudy and rainy for a really long time and then there's that one day where the sun comes out, It it has felt like that almost every day. Since then, mm-hmm. even in terms of my spiritual life and, and soul, just this sense of like, oh, it, it turns out that, that you don't actually get to heal if you're completely committed to numbing pain. <laughs> mm-hmm, this was brand new mm-hmm. information to me. I mean <laughs> brand new information. And so it turns out you need to feel things. It turns yeah. out you need to actually kind of um, you know, you're not going to be able to manage even, you know, chronic illness or pain or, or those sorts of things if you are masking or numbing or or managing those things in, in this way. Same thing is true for your spiritual and, and mental health. Um mm-hmm. and so for me, I think that was part of of maybe what it has felt like. It's felt like a whole new day.
1: I want to go back a little bit to flag something you said earlier. I have also been struck by the language that's been co-opted around alcohol, particularly, I think, for women, although I don't think it's exclusive. But um, there's a lot of like, you deserve this. This is your treat. Mommy's juice.
0: And Which is a uh, a very strange. It's so weird. And (laughs) kind of gross. Like twisted. I know. It's, ups- it's upsetting. It's like infantilizing. It is. It is. It's Big really
1: time. It's really weird because I would hear that all the time. I don't have, I'm not in a lot, of, around a lot of moms, but just this, like the end of the day, like, oh, it's been such a long day. I really deserve a drink, you know, and like trying to change that even in my own head of being like, I want to drink. I'm wondering how, as you, as you were in the process of quitting, like how you kind of changed some of that language and how you found ways to, I don't know, sort of, even talk to yourself about like what you would need or want instead of this thing that you've been told that you like deserve or as your treat.
2: Mm -hmm. No, I think you're exactly right. I mean, I, we have four kids and the message I think, especially throughout most of the um, aughts and even into the early 2010s, that was 100% the dynamic. And that was that was how it was marketed. That was how it was sold. That was how it was culturally, you know, kind of acceptable. And and I think that it, it normalized it to such a degree that uh, uh, there's whole generations of, of women who began to drink a whole lot more than they even felt comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And I think the pandemic has increased that. Mm-hmm. You know, and there have been a, a tremendous amount of studies over the last number of years in terms of the effect of that, in terms of what that has meant for people. But I think, especially for for women, which has tended to be a bit underreported and under under researched, as in mm-hmm. pretty much every area to do with yeah. women's health, <gasps> and- which is a whole other podcast episode. <laughs>
0: Yeah, let's but, come back for that. Okay, <laughs> come back around for that one. But there
2: was this sense for me of like it does feel like you're almost disentangling or learning a whole new language. And so one of the mm-hmm. things that was really helpful for me, well, I can't remember who it was that I I came across this from, but they built this idea of like building your own kind of self care um, toolkit. Oh yeah, was kind of the idea. And one thing that was really helpful for me in my journey with chronic illness was um, something that my friend Kelly Gordon told me one day where she said, um, you need to start to learn to discern the difference between self-care and self-comfort. Mm. And that was a game changer yeah. for me because I am i am so prone to self-comfort. It's probably upsetting. Like I, and you're not going to find me being someone who, um, you know, dogs a Netflix binge you know, and ordering takeout or taking mm-hmm. a long bath. Mm-hmm. Like, listen, I'm, I'm here for all of that. But there is a point where I think you realize that self-comfort um, has a place, but we have confused self-comfort with self-care. And self care mm-hmm. is more the adult stuff. Mm-hmm. It's it's the being a grown up stuff. It's it's eating well. It's um, looking after yourself. It's you know trying to move your body. It's you know taking taking your mental health mm-hmm. very seriously. It's showing up for your for your therapy appointments. It is you know emptying the dishwasher. It's it's that kind of stuff. Making your dentist <laughs> yeah. appointments. You know like that's self care. Oh
0: shoot. <laughs> I was worried you were going to bring up the dentist. I did
1: it yesterday. Right. It's taken me months
2: if I did it yesterday. Yay. So I am oh totally on board with this. I'm like, yes, that does feel like self-care. We should get badges like they do in Girl Guides every time we do anything I, that, that remotely resembles a lot, actual actually. self-care. There's so no <laughs> badge for going to the dentist. But I think that that was, that was, I think, part of it in terms of like developing those practices that were actually self-care. And so mm-hmm. when instead mm-hmm. I maybe had these yeah. moments where I'd be like all right I'll just reach for a glass of wine and usually it'd be after supper and then all of a sudden it's at supper and then all of a sudden it's at 4 and then you know you're just like mm-hmm, wait a minute yeah. this is not who I am and this is not how I want to live my life and this isn't this mm-hmm. isn't you know, for a million reasons, this isn't working. Um, mm-hmm. There was this mm-hmm. sense of like, all right, what are the things then that I can do that would actually be looking after myself? And some of mm-hmm. that was things that I didn't really expect because it turns out if you only enjoy being around certain people when you're drinking, you actually don't enjoy those people. Oh, man. <laughs> right?
0: Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Which dude. is a whole other thing. And so all of a sudden, you're like, why hey, does everybody this- drink around me? Yeah. <laughs> <Right? laughs> <Caitlin. laughs> That's
2: another that's,
0: podcast
1: episode. That's revealing. <laughs> wow! Yeah. Yeah. But
2: there's this Absolutely. sense of like, you know, what are the things that actually bring me joy? What are the things mm-hmm. that make me feel alive? What are the things? And th- that, to me, was I think maybe the differentiator between self care and self comfort for my mm-hmm. health across the board. Um, let alone in this area in in regards to alcohol, there was a sense of like, well, what is act? What if if I if I was being cared for by like a very kind um, but very capable mother, mm-hmm. you know what would that look like? And mm-hmm. and I think that it would look like some of these other things. It would look like, you, know, I'm going to drink my water, and at the time of day when I would normally sit down, you know, with a, a probably an, a heavy pour. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. in a, in a wine glass, you know, I'm going to go for a walk outside. I'm going to, um, mm-hmm. you know, have certain books I want to read. I'm going to make, you know, uh, plans to go out with my sister for a cup of tea. I'm going to, you know, do things that actually make me feel good or make me feel alive. I'm going to find the things. And then those are the things I'm going to practice until I have figured out and, and kind of gotten gone through maybe some of that. But those were mm-hmm. some of the things I think in terms of like the treat language or the, what you deserve, mm-hmm. yeah. like what you really deserve is actually, you know, probably better than what you're getting from the things you're leaning on for self-comfort, even though those have a place. And I think that those are necessary. As I said, I'm not, you know, kind of a, such a black and white thinker that it has to be one or the other all the time, but.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that was really helpful, but also I really don't like going out for tea I don't. I can't. I've never been able to
0: do tea. (laughs) So this actually leads to a question, which is just like we said, my two Americans. Yes. (laughs) I tried so many times to be the tea person, and it's just never worked.
1: And I, I just we live both Caitlin and I live in New York, and I think both of us can say that moving to New York ramped up our drinking lives. Like it is what people do socially here. Like. And no, we don't go too. hang out at each other's houses very often because we all live in tiny boxes. And it's just like New York, the, the social way that you hang out with people in New York is not to drink tea. It is to drink martinis. Right. So how tell us about how your social life changed and how you sort of approached being in social situations where you knew like the mm-hmm. expectation, the norm, the fun thing was going to be drinking mm-hmm. together.
2: Yeah, I think... <sighs> you know, that is a good question. And I think one of the things that I think is is really nice is that we're kind of at um, at a moment of renaissance around sobriety. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, I think, especially for women, there is just mm-hmm. a plethora of books and podcasts and resources and things being created for people who are either sober curious, or who are interested, like me, in, in intentional sobriety, even though there wasn't. And again, I think some of the language we use around alcohol is like, we're we're looking for some big trauma. We're looking for some Mm -hmm. big rock bottom moment. We're looking to hear that Mm you lost your kids or, you know, all these other sorts of terrible things. And those things (sighs) do happen. That can absolutely happen. I understand the temperance movement more today than I probably ever did before. And I also understand why Mm -hmm. it was led by a lot of first wave feminists. Mm
1: -hmm. Because the
2: the disproportionate impact of alcoholism on women and children is is just astronomical even to this day. But there's more this sense of... um, there's a lot of, of more options and a lot of of possibilities. And so I find, you know, even in terms of like the awkwardness, I mean, you know, one friend of mine, like if someone asks why she's not drinking, usually you have to have an answer in your pocket because people are curious. And it's one of those things people will always ask. It's pretty much the only drug you have to justify not taking. Right. Um, and Mm. so you end up with this, you know, she'll say, um, well, I drank all mine, you know, like I'm out. (laughs) You know, or or whatever else. So you'll just say oh, not tonight, or or whatever else you you maybe need to. I just usually say I'm just not a drinker, and so there there are lots mm-hmm. of options in a lot of bars now who mm-hmm. actually have created. There's very few times mm-hmm. that I go out with friends, um, or that I go out to a, a nice restaurant or go out to the bar where there isn't some sort of non-alcoholic option that even actually looks quite pretty and fun. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's lots of options there, and so even there. You know, most people tend not to give you too much grief. If people do, it's usually about their own stuff and not yours. And mm-hmm. there are a lot of options um, if you don't even want to have the conversation. You know, you'd look like you've got a drink in your hand as far as anybody's concerned. You know, there's. it's funny to me how much me not drinking or being in a room as a non-drinker can make a lot of people all of a sudden need to talk about their relationship with alcohol yeah. or, you mm-hmm. know, explain to me all the reasons why they're fine. Uh, you know my mouth shut on it just because I'm I don't really
1: want to hear it.
0: Because <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. it's gonna bring up all this stuff that then they have to justify right. their own drinking it's, choices. It's kind of funny, isn't it? You know, just yeah.
2: and again I, I have zero judgment. I drank for a lot of years without any, you know, real thought or issue or problem probably. And I think a lot of mm-hmm. people are probably still there. But mm-hmm. um, but it is funny to me how when people find out you're not a drinker, there's usually often like this knee jerk response for them to justify why they are or why mm-hmm. they feel you know mm-hmm. they almost want absolution, and it's like, well, mm-hmm. I'm I'm not I'm not I can't give you that. That's up to you.
0: <laughs> right, right. So yeah, you just you just noted, Sarah, that we're we are in this renaissance of conversations about sobriety and sober curiosity, and just so many resources for people who want to explore their relationship with alcohol. And Mm -hmm. I won't presume to speak for Roxy, but I've been sober curious, you know, like I've for, I would say since the beginning of the pandemic, let's just put a pin on that specific time. For sure. Um, So for people who perhaps like me are sober curious, but aren't at the place where they're ready to say, I'm done with alcohol. Like I'm, I, you know, I'm making a clear decision, but I still want to examine this. Are there specific tools or questions that might be helpful to examine the role that alcohol plays in our lives?
2: I think, I think there's a lot of different ways. I mean, me being a writer and a voracious reader, there are a few things that I, there are a few problems I do not think that you could throw a book at, right? And so I'm always. I try to be a little more careful about, you know, overwhelming in terms of there's such a, a vast um, community of writers who are talking about that. There's even a book called Super, Sober Curious for people who are interested in that. Um, there's other ones. You know, one of the things I've been really interested in, and I, I probably need to study it a bit more and learn a little bit more, is, is the deep connections between the sobriety movement and the feminist movement. Mm-hmm. Um, because it feels like there's a lot of really young, very powerful, you know, young feminists and feminists who are, who are really dismantling,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
2: and, and see it even as a form of dismantling patriarchy in their lives. What was mm-hmm. that? <laughs> but it was like my daughter's generation. She's in in, her, in high school. It's like, they think of alcohol as like a, a boomer thing. You know, like that's just not <laughs> You know, like, they're they're not drinking the way that are, like, I'm a Gen X, right? And so, and and I'm Mm -hmm. Canadian. And so, like, listen, drinking beer in the bushes is is pretty much how we enter our teen years. But that's (laughs) not the case anymore in terms of, like, their generation doesn't engage in a lot of those risky behaviors. And so I think one of the things that is really being helpful for me and even helped in the journey towards this was just trying. And again, it's not if if someone feels like alcohol has a real grip on them it's not a matter of like for me of just stopping you know it's it's something that you need support for it's something that you need community for mm-hmm. you may need medical care for i don't want to minimize the importance and necessity of asking for help and the importance of saying, well, you know what, try AA, but if that doesn't work, there are a lot of other options for, Mm -hmm. you know, learning about your relationship with alcohol. If, if that doesn't work for you, because it doesn't work for everyone, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and a lot of those books and a lot of those resources and even, you know, TikTok accounts and Instagram accounts. And I mean, there's a lot of of things that are kind of happening there, but one of the things that I found really helpful um, were even silly things that maybe I would have dismissed um, years before, like dry January or dry February, where you would just say, "Let's just see how I feel."
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I, I wonder sometimes if in about thirty or forty years we'll have a relationship with alcohol like we do with cigarettes now. Yeah, where it's like there's still a lot of people who, who smoke, and, and that's you know a, a choice that you can make, but you're much more aware of the risks. And I feel like maybe that's the direction maybe we're heading, in, you know, hopefully in a generation where it's like you know you, you can you have freedom to make the decisions you want to make, but, but you have a lot more awareness or cultural understanding of the risks instead of just mm-hmm. of the, um, you know, the, the narrative that maybe alcohol would, would want.
0: Thank you so much for this yeah. conversation, Sarah. It was really good and it's yeah, given me I a lot really to think about. I appreciate
1: it. Same. Okay. Thanks for, thanks for going there with us. It is
2: good to see both of your faces. It's good to have a good conversation and I'm thankful for the thoughtfulness you're bringing to this topic, but also so many others that you're exploring.
0: Thank you. you.
1: Save by the City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Elizabeth Joy Winton.
0: Chaz Rousseau put together our look and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Roxy Stone and Caitlin Beatty. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening. Roxy, what was your first alcoholic beverage? You said that in such a funny way. It sounded like an ad.
1: It sort of was like a cross ad and like the start of therapy. Roxy. <laughs>
0: well, maybe that's where we're going. <laughs>